a reading from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. We also constantly give thanks to God for this, that when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as what it really is, God's word, which is also at work in you believers. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own compatriots as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displeased God and opposed everyone by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Thus they have constantly been filling up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has overtaken them at last. As for us, brothers and sisters, when for a short time we were made orphans by being separated from you, in person, not in heart, we longed with great eagerness to see you face to face. For we wanted to come to you, Certainly I, Paul, wanted to again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Yes, you are our glory and joy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. At that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else and no one can snatch it out of my father's hand. The father and I are one. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Our father, uh, we ask that you would meet us in these words of scripture this morning and help us to know how we might pull them into our own lives and inhabit them uh, today and this week and for the rest of our lives. Would you meet us, Father, Son, and Spirit, in these words, in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, so a few weeks ago, just before Emmeline's graduation, Stacy and I decided we would just take a little vacation for ourselves. And so we did that in rural Pennsylvania. And so here we are in this historic hotel in rural Pennsylvania. And um, we come out of our room one afternoon, and we look down to our right, down this rather long, meandering corridor, and we see this dude walking toward us, and he is wearing long, flowing purple robes. They are silky in nature, 
And um, he also had long, white, gray hair. Maybe it was a wig, I don't really know. And uh, a pointy hat, let's just call it a wizard's hat. And, um, and on his beard, he had this sort of telltale thing, a ponytail, like right about here. And, and, and we kind of looked at each other and said, well, you know, well, who knew Dumbledore was staying in our hotel? And um, the odd thing was this, was that like no one was in costume. Like no one else was in costume. Everybody else was wearing like a suit or, you know, sort of dress clothes of one sort. And these folks were going to some dinner somewhere. But nobody is in costume except Dumbledore. And maybe he wasn't in costume. But so we get on the elevator and we start looking at the name tags. Like what have we stumbled into here in rural Pennsylvania, right? Some weird space. And um, sure enough, there are name tags that people are wearing. It has their name. It has their company because this is a corporate event. Um, and, uh, and then right at the very bottom, Slithering. Hufflepuff, Gryffindor, and you're like, oh, we're in Harry Potter land for the weekend. Here we are. So I looked to Stacy and I said, so which house would you live in? Now, I share that story because it was really weird and goofy, but because this is how human beings live with the stories that we read, right? We, we enter them in some way, right? We connect with some dimension. Now, now, Harry Potter has got a lot of beauty and a lot of wonderful places for us to connect with, but we do this with story just all the time in countless ways because the things we read, the stories we tell, help us understand our own humanity. Who am I? What is my identity? Who am I like? What am I like? What is my purpose in life? And so on and so forth. We use stories to do this. And one of the ways you could frame Paul's letters is he is across the board trying to help uh, these, this early moment of the Christian church, figure out what would it mean if you took the, the message, right, of Jesus' life seriously, or the story of Jesus' life, his, his living, all of the interactions that he had that you read about in the Gospels, um, you, you take seriously this, his, uh, his suffering unto death, man of sorrows, you take uh, very seriously the fact that God raises him from the dead and the gift of the Spirit and the, the presence of his kingdom and so on and so forth. What would it mean for you to enter that story, to take it seriously, to find a way of recalibrating, if you will, your own understanding of yourself and your calling and purpose in the world? And 1 Thessalonians is one of those letters that Paul does that. And he mentions the message that he's preached over and over again. And he does that in the text that we're looking at uh, this morning. How do they inhabit this story of Jesus and keep going with it? Now, three things I want us to think about uh, this morning and these, around these words, acceptance, imitation, and joy, acceptance, imitation, and joy. So first, think about this word acceptance. Already we've seen as we've been reading through First Thessalonians that Paul acknowledges that uh, Christianity, faith, is more caught than taught. And he, he says things like, you became imitators of us, right? We've talked about that already, that there's something that we get uh, and that we understand or really that we even experience about Jesus when we are in the presence of other people that have experienced Jesus. Imitators, right? We are imitators. The mirror neurons begin to fire in our own brains even still, even though we're not babies. So this is a reality for us. Now, here in this particular moment, Paul begins to focus um, on how they've accepted not just 
Paul is a messenger, right? We, last week we looked, for example, that he was not a messenger like the other ones they were accustomed to hearing, right? Those are people that peddled their view of truth or their view of happiness. Uh, they were out to make a buck. They were manipulative and so on and so forth. Paul says, not from us. Here he focuses on the message itself. You receive this message for what it was. It's not fictional. It's not made up. It's not a story that other human beings sort of conjured up or developed, but this is the very story of God. This is God's Word. Right? You received it that way. He identifies that uh, for them. Now, he's talking about the message of Jesus. I always think whenever you read something in the New Testament about God's Word, it's always important just to remind ourselves that our knee-jerk reaction, which would be to say, well, Paul's talking about the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. No, that's not what he's talking about at all. Because the Bible wasn't written, at least not the Bible that we have in our, you have on your phone, right? Uh, or that you have in your home, literally, right? But rather, this is a moment in the church, right, in which, yes, they knew the, of the Hebrew Scriptures, they knew about the Jewish Scriptures. Uh, maybe they're beginning to know a little bit about parts of the New Testament that we've come to identify and understand as the New Testament. But, but really what Paul is talking about is the simple message of who Jesus is. That's what he's talking about. You received Jesus' story for what it actually is, God's Word. It's the space in which God has been active. God has promised uh, something in Christ. He's affected something in Christ. He's brought something about in Christ, and you receive that as true, the true message of God. Now, you accepted the story. What does that mean? I think it means that they entered it. <laughs> they they took it in. They begin to live life in reference to it, really to Jesus himself, and taking very seriously what he did. Now, what would that mean in our lives? It means something like this. If you stumbled in here and you were well aware of some conflict that you had this weekend, for example, maybe you uh, got into a fight with someone that you like, or maybe you were triggered by someone and you realized that your love for them is not perfect, and you, maybe you feel a little bit of guilt around that, or maybe you're thinking about your larger story as a human being, and there are things you've done in your life that you don't, you don't take pride in. Like, you know they weren't your best self. You know that you weren't representing your best self in that moment, right? You, we all have those realities about us. It simply means to take Jesus' story seriously is that you recognize that in Christ, God extends deep, eternal forgiveness for your sins. Maybe there's something that you feel shame about in your life. It means that Jesus has, has dealt with your shame, put it out of the way, so that you aren't encumbered by it when you're walking around as a human being in this life. That means you're taking the story of Christ seriously. Maybe you look at your life and you think, well, I don't feel like, you know, the story I tell myself about myself is that I'm not of much value. I'm not, I'm not worth anything. I'm, I'm not enough. I mean, we all have lies that we sort of walk around the day and we either sort of self-consciously and a lot of times really not self-consciously at all. We're not aware of the lies that are sort of guiding our behavior. But all of a sudden you come to what God says about you and the person of Jesus and you recognize what? I'm, I'm a person made in the likeness of God that God has delighted in enough to bring redemption to my life. 
That's a really different story than the lie that's going on in your head. Maybe um, you could just think of all the different things that you know about your own self. Or maybe you look out into our world and you say, my biggest concern, my biggest struggle is that I look at our world and there is injustice in our world. And there is one story and multiple stories every day and every hour about incidences of inequality and unjust treatment of other human beings. And this is wrong and it must stop. And you hear the story of Christ and you think, you know what? God agrees. It must stop. And the kingdom of God is about its ending. It's about the ending of that broken world. And so to take Jesus' story seriously means that against all odds sometimes, you just circle back to what we know to be true of Jesus in his life before God and before neighbor, his resurrection, his promise to come again, the gift of his spirit, and you hold on to that in the midst of this world and you just recalibrate. You come back, you set your attention, you set your focus on the reality of what God has said in Jesus, and then you begin to think, well, how does that alter the way I live now? I, I have, I'm not stuck in this old pattern of living. I'm, I change, right? So that's really what it means to accept the story of Jesus. It, of course, includes believing its truth value, but it means so much more than that. It means adjusting your life to the truthfulness of his story. Paul says the word is powerfully at work among them. He saw that in the Thessalonians The power of Jesus' story is just this, that when you come to it, you come to him. You come to a person, not an idea, not a philosophy of life, not a principle of living life. You come to the living God who became a person in our world. And that's the power of the story of Christ. Paul says you accepted it, you entered this message as ultimate and defining reality for your own selves. Now the second thing he says here is is a word about imitation again, right? So already he's talked about imitating Paul's faith, but now he says you, which, which basically means this, you mirrored us. You saw us following Jesus and you followed in our likeness. Now he says there's a sense in which you could look at your experience as the community of Jesus' followers And you could say that you imitated the churches in Judea because your experiences of suffering are very much like their experiences of suffering. Um, Now, why pull out, well, one, you pull out suffering because it was happening. But why do you sort of draw particular attention to this? Maybe one of the reasons you draw particular attention to the challenge of suffering is just this. Think about some hard thing in your life where you've suffered. What has been difficult for you? When you hit a snag or a space of difficulty in your life, when you suffer in some way, emotionally, physically, relationally, all of the different kinds of ways that we could say we suffer as human beings, right? There's a multitude of ways that we experience the brokenness of life in this world, and it's not fun, it is not enjoyable, and very often the moment sort of we hit spaces of suffering, it it is so easy inside of our heads to be flooded with self-doubt. Have you ever felt that way? Like, what did I do to get here? (laughs) It's my fault. How did I mess things up? 
How did I make a wrong choice? How did I pull the wrong lever? How did I turn the wrong way on the road? I mean, just on and on, we, we begin to sort of perseverate and think about, right, all of the ways in which maybe we could have made a different choice and maybe a different outcome would be happening right now. That's the natural human response to hard things. If only I had not. What if I had not? And what Paul wants this particular congregation to understand about themselves is that their experiences of suffering mirror the experiences of the very first church communities in Judea, in the Jewish region where where Christianity emerges and begins. You are experiencing the same kinds of rejection and suffering by the world around you as that first church experienced. That's what's happening. And not only that, we could push it even further back and we could go into and say that your experience mirrors the experience of Jesus himself because he suffered. Remember where Jesus says in John's gospel that in the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. That sounds weird. For I have overcome the world. That's such an odd juxtaposition of statements, I think. Because on the one hand, I want to think that Jesus is overcoming the world means that right now there is no trouble. My life is immune. It's like I took immunotherapy against trouble. That's what I want to feel like and want to think like and want to live like, that I was sort of protected from trouble. But Jesus says, in the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer in relation to me. I have overcome the world, and therefore you have overcome the world. Even though you experience these spaces of trouble, your life is mirroring the life and the experience of Jesus himself. Now, Here's a problem with these verses, and one of the ways they're hard for us, and it's this, because whenever anyone in our culture or our lives, whenever we begin to single out a particular experience of trouble, and we sort of speak of it in relation to a group or a community of people, in this case, Paul speaks of the Jewish community as oppositional to Christianity, right? we begin to get nervous. We become uncomfortable. And we become uncomfortable for very good reasons because we see violence perpetuated in our world, right, tribally. And you just pick your tribe. And we don't know how to live with each other in God's world without it feeling like a zero-sum game that someone wins and someone loses always, and I'm going to make sure I win. And so you could read this and you could say, wait a minute, is Paul dipping into tribalism here? Is he sort of moving in an anti-Semitic direction, right? Is that what's going on here? No, that's not what's going on here. How do I know that? Because the context of their current conflict simply happens to have a Jewish flavor. And it really couldn't have any other kind of flavor. Because Christianity emerges inside of Judaism, right? It emerges in this particular context, right? So it has a Jewish flavor because they were the group that were pushing against Paul and his extension of the message of Jesus toward the non-Jewish world, toward the Gentiles. They're oppositional to that reality. Um, Christianity up to this moment had been understood to be a sect within Judaism. Now, what does that mean? Well, think about Christianity for a minute. 
So we're a member of the Reformed Church in America, which most of a few of us say that, you're like, well, who's that, right? You know, what does that mean? Um, or, you know, we, you could say, uh, think about Presbyterians. Well, the moment you think about Presbyterians, you're thinking about, like, lots of different kinds of Presbyterians, actually. So, so sects, right? Divisions inside of the church that we carve ourselves up by in order to understand similarities and in order to understand sort of places of affiliation and things that we share in common. You see, inside of Judaism, it happens even today. There are multiple denominations, if you will. And so here at this very juncture of the history of the church, it's as if Christianity is sort of emerging as a, as a denomination inside of Judaism. But in this particular moment in Paul's life and in the church's life, the Jewish community is saying, no, you're sufficiently different not to be like us at all. You've, you've moved in a direction that doesn't fit how we understand and practice ourselves. There's a real difference. There's a gap that's emerging. And so there's a resistance. And one of the problems that that meant for the church was just this that the Jewish community inside of the Roman Empire was protected in a certain way. Now, not totally, of course not. Of course they weren't respected and honored in all the ways one might want to be respected and honored. But Jewish individuals were not required to engage the cult around the emperor. In other words, they didn't have to offer their worship or their allegiance to the emperor in the same way that everyone else inside of any of the cities under Roman control had to do so. And what that meant is not only was the church, the moment it became sideways in some sense with the Jewish community, it also began to be sideways with the Roman civil community. And the Thessalonians were experiencing that side of that, like that side of the conflict, that side of the rejection. You see, the problem is a human problem. It's a human struggle against God. The problem that he articulates is this human struggle that we have against God that is regardless of our ethnicity, our race, our religion, our gender, or whatever other story that you use to principally identify who you are. We all collectively and commonly struggle against God. A few years back, I was over at Princeton and I was was, uh, at a seminar uh, one, one week and uh, Willie Jennings, who is an African-American theologian uh, now at Yale, he was speaking uh, to this group that I was a part of. And he said, you know, here's the thing. We walk into the room, uh, any room, any collective, and almost immediately you, you feel most comfortable around people that have some similarity to you, right? I mean, right? We all do it. You, you want to divide up socioeconomically. I'd rather, if, if you're a wealthy person, it's more comfortable to hang around with other wealthy people. If you're an educated person, it's more comfortable to you, for you to hang around other edu- highly educated people. If, you, uh, if you're an artist, you know, you, you bind together as the artist in the community. If you, and so on and so forth. We do this ethnically, we do it religiously. Across the spectrum, we do this. This is how human beings have made their world safe by dividing up according to some identity, but it's not identities. These are not identities that bring unity across the diversity. So Willie Jennings says this, you walk into the room and immediately you feel more comfort with these superficials and cultural distinctions that you share with other people. You find them and you identify and you get near them, right? He said, but the reality is like the thing we actually share in common the most is our struggle with God. 
like what we actually share in common across the diversity is that we struggle with God. We struggle with God. We're, we're what the Bible calls sinners. We live in alienation to God. But we also have a common hope that extends and bridges across all of the diversity. And that is that God refuses to struggle with you. He is for you. He moves toward you in love to redeem you, to draw you to himself, not to change all the things that you like about your distinctiveness necessarily, but to turn all of that toward the reality of who Jesus is. So that if you've grown up in some other space of religion or cultural identity or ethnicity, maybe one of the ways you begin to think about this is you think, well, what does it look like if I've grown up in this other cultural space? What does it look like for me and for my people, my tribe, if you will, to begin to take very seriously that God, the one true God, has entered the world in the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and he has done so in, other, in order to liberate us to the best possible expression of our identity and ourselves as human beings. And the moment you embrace that, it changes the way you relate to one another. It's not a zero-sum game anymore. It's not looking at your neighbor as someone who's oppositional. It's looking at your neighbor in love, wanting to lift them in the same way that God lifts you and brings you into your greatest self, right? To take Jesus' story seriously means you enter that struggle in which sometimes you end up sideways with people. But it's because you've come into this kingdom of God there's one last thing I have to mention here because it's a hard word in the text, and it's the word wrath. And so you're reading this, and you're thinking, you know, okay, okay, explain this wrath stuff to me, Tuck, you know, right? Um, how, do we, how do we deal with that, right? How do we not see that as God just perpetuating the violence, right, that we see in our own culture? How do I think about this? I like Eugene Peterson and the way he puts it here as he translates that last verse. He says, they have made a career of opposing God. But God is fed up, and he's ready to put an end to it. Remember what we said about the kingdom of God that has come true in Jesus? That what God says in declaring Jesus, when he rises, raises him from the dead, and when he set, gives him, as Paul says, the highest name that is above all names, what God says is that this kingdom that Jesus initiated and inaugurated, the kingdom that you actually experienced in his presence, if you lived during his time, that reality of that love is the reality that will go on forever. And all other realities stop. All the other stories stop. That's what he means. Paul understood the story of Jesus to be the final word of God over our human struggle with him by saying, in Jesus Christ, I bring you into myself in a way that you will become participants in humanity the way you were meant to participate as lovers, offering your life one to another. So acceptance, imitation, now joy. Paul basically says that we're homesick for you. That's how Eugene Peterson translates the first part of that last part of the text. He says, you, 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 we're homesick for you. Now, some of you have ex had the experience of homesickness in your own life before, right? And what, do you mean, what, do you, what does that mean for you as a person? Well, if you've ever felt that feeling, it means that a letter is not enough. 
<laughs> right? I mean, it's just like you're glad for the letter, and it's really wonderful to get a letter. And there's some really beautiful things that we say to each other in letters to one another across great distances or now through email, maybe even through the beauty of text messaging or WhatsApp or whatever your preferred mode of communication. But it's still not enough because what you really long for is just face-to-face. I want to see you. I want to look in your face, and I want my eyes to connect with your eyes, and I want to reach out and touch, and I want to know that we are present to one another. That's what I long for when I feel homesick. Not just a simple cultural reminder of home. I want the persons of home. Now, here's the thing. In the text we looked at last week, Paul said, we loved you like a mother and a father. It's an interesting thing to think about in the context of Mother's Day or later Father's Day. We loved you like a mother and a father. And here I think he circles back to love like that. And he says, our joy is tied up in your life. Our joy is tied up in your life. Verses 19 and 20. For you are our hope and joy and crown before the Lord, for you are our glory and joy. Sit with those words for a moment and think about it in this context. Most of us in the room have been around babies before, right? Almost, maybe all of us have been around babies. I, I hope you've had the privilege of being around a baby in some way, some form or fashion. But here's one of the things. If you've ever been in the room with a baby when they've done some first new thing, uh, the parents are usually pretty excited about it. Um, so it could be like they've been laying on their back all day and they finally figure out how to roll over. And that's a pretty important neurological development and physical, physiological development. And it's just like this exciting thing. They rolled over today. And maybe it's not the rollover moment. Maybe it's when the hand was reaching out to grab the rattle or the play toy. And maybe it's when they actually started, they sort of ended up on all fours in some weird way or maybe a weird commando kind of way as some of my kids crawled. But, you know, there's this crawling thing that begins to happen. It's really exciting. And then there's that really, really big moment when they're sta- they've, they've sort of risen beside the, uh, the coffee table, right? And they're, they're standing there, and you know they want what? They want, they want to take a step toward mommy or daddy. That's what they want. And you know it, and the mommy and daddy know it, and you're both like into this. And, and there, if you're ever in that moment, in that room, every adult in the room is saying, come on, you got it. Yes, take the step. Have you been in those moments? Why do you smile when that happens? Why does it make you happy when that happens? Why does it feel so important? I, I think it, it feels important because you're meant to grow up. Like, you're meant to grow up. And so as a parent, you, your joy is wed to watching this unfold, right, in this baby's life. Like, they're doing it. Like, they're just in this next chapter of life. And wow, it happened so fast. And when's that next chapter going to happen? And the next chapter going to happen? So what Paul is saying is just simply this. We marveled at your growth. I really want to see you as you think about your life in this story of who Jesus is that you crawl, that you walk, that you run, that you just keep taking the next steps with who Jesus is. You know, every time we do a baptism, 
of a child, an infant at City Church. One of the things, not, not every time, but almost every time, I, I usually say something to the effect, and I'm realizing now I didn't say this last week, but I should have, and I could have. It is this, it is that Jesus is enough for every chapter of your life. It is like, you know, so here's this little child, and what are we saying? What are we covenanting with this child for it? Within this moment, we're saying, hey, as a mom, as a dad, as a congregation, as friends, as family, as grandparents, we are, we are coming to this relationship, and we're saying, hey, Jesus is enough for you as this one-year-old. And when you become two and you begin to experience the world as a terrible two, Jesus is enough for that space of your life. And when you move into four or five or 10 or 15 or 40 or 70, that Jesus is enough, his story fits the space of your life. And Paul just simply says, I want you to grow like that. Our joy is wed to seeing that happen in you. You see, our our joy as Christians becomes wed to this practice of giving ourselves away and wanting the joy of other people. We want their growth. We want their maturation. We want them to keep going. So the question I have for myself as I read this text and for you is this, is just simply this. Are you doing this as a Christian? Like, are, to take the story of Jesus seriously means that you become connected to the growth of other people. You're a transmitter. You love like a mother. You love like a father. You wed your joy to the growth of the body of Christ. Are you part of a community that cheers you on in your own life? A team of allies that gets near you in a certain way and says, take this step. This is awesome. My joy is in your taking this step. Are you in those kinds of relationships in your life? And are you that kind of a person in relationship to other people? This is the journey of joy that finds delight in the delight of others. Paul's words are not that far off from the author of Hebrews, how he describes Jesus when he says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And that joy is not simply that Jesus knew by some divine act that God would raise him up. It's barely that. The joy is simply that in raising him up, God raises you up. In raising Jesus up, God raises you up and he situates our humanity inside of the greater story of who Jesus is. And inside of this great kingdom of God that has come in him, a kingdom of beauty and goodness and truth and love that will endure forever and all other stories fade away. That's Paul's joy too. And it should be our own. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these words of scripture and more importantly, the, the words of Jesus and the story of who Jesus is, would you... Help us to know his joy in us, his joy in seeing us take tiny baby steps of faith and running in faith. And would you help us to run and would you help us to love one another in the same way we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The, uh, the offerings of time we think about those things God is saying to us and teaching, we offer our hearts and our lives to him. Let's do that now.